guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Well, I don't know about you, but today's first reading from the book of Job, though it was written down thousands of years ago, sounds familiar as the morning news. In the mouth of Job, we hear the, the listless despondency that is so common to this age of endless amusement and distraction and noise. In the mouth of Job, we find the dissatisfied protests of those seeking economic justice, those condemned to wage slavery, unable to provide for their basic needs. In the mouth of Job, we hear the desire for consolation from God and from our religious practice, but that desire frustrated or disappointed. You might even say in the mouth of Job, you can hear the echoes of those laments of college students still awake in the wee hours of the morning, laboring over a project or studying for an exam, crying out, I have been assigned months of misery, and troubled nights have been allotted to me. Many poets, many thinkers, many sages down through the through the eras of the human race have claimed what we hear from Job today is the truth of mankind. Everything else is self-deception, a false exaltation of spirit, a momentary forgetfulness of our fundamental futility. And when we return to these dark thoughts, we find the truth about our state. There's something plausible about that thought. This perspective is not entirely without merit. We are weak, we are limited, we are finite, we are living in exile from our true home. And there's something attractive about its resignation, its determination to simply continue on until they, until they lay you in the ground. But is it the whole truth about our state? Does it faithfully articulate what is fundamentally true about ourselves and about our place in the world? I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe that Christianity is the worldview that speaks most directly into this human situation. But who among us would claim to be able to resist those dark thoughts when they threaten to overcome us in times of trouble, let alone be able to convincingly articulate them and convince others to reject those thoughts as a lie and an attack of the enemy. Who among us could do that? Who among us could take up the call of the gospel to speak the good things that our brothers and sisters truly need to hear, to take them by the hand as Jesus takes that woman in the gospel today in her fevered state and draw her out, and to do so artfully, and to do so with conviction. The landscape, I'll admit, it's rather bare. There's a few points of light here and there, people we look to that maybe for a little while inspire or draw us more deeply into this mystery of our human predicament and the way forward through it. But it's a question I often ask, why is it that Christianity and, and Catholics seem to struggle so much and fail 
to be those convincing witnesses in the public square today? Why is it that we seem like we're always on the defensive, waging a war of attrition and losing? Recently, one of my former professors, now Bishop Robert Barron, who serves out in California, appeared in a, a public debate, a public conversation with a Protestant uh, evangelical apologist, someone who helps articulate defenses in a public way against uh, attacks on Christianity. The conversation that they had was, was live streamed uh, on, over the internet and I was able to revisit that and the conversation that the two of them were having. And though they had many points of difference, they both agreed they were firmly opposed to what they call dumbed down versions of Christianity. One reason that so many people are leaving Catholicism and Christianity, argued Bishop Barron, is that religious teachers and leaders have presented an anemic and superficial and intellectually uncompelling version of faith. Therefore, what's needed is a revival of what they call a classical Christian apologetics. That is to say, an intelligent defense of the faith against its rational critics. And here the word apologist conjures up probably something we're all too familiar with. Christian leaders apologizing for bad deeds, lack of faithfulness or trustworthiness in the past. That's not the sense that Bishop Barron is using it. The word apologist comes from the Greek word apologeia, which means to offer a defense, a defense, a reasoned and principled defense. In other words, Bishop Barron and this evangelical theologian, William Lane Craig, are saying we need to think about our faith. We need to be willing to think about it and think hard. When we come to church, we should be challenged, not only personally, not only in terms of our, our daily lives and our practical decisions, but in our minds. And furthermore, we shouldn't just have to do that in church, but that we could even spend time outside of our Sunday obligation, thinking through our, our beliefs, their consistency, coming to understand more deeply and in a more mature way why it is we believe the things that we do. All of this came to a head for me as, as I've been preparing in my own reading and, and study for our event tomorrow night at Radius. Our talks on the rocks will be taking place there tomorrow evening at 7.30. We're welcoming Dale Alquist, who has made his name as what you might call uh, a disciple of a famous uh, and a very important person from the past. Alquist is most known for his work articulating and popularizing the work of G.K. Chesterton, who I would say is the most important person of the 20th century that you've probably never heard of. <laughs> Chesterton presented in his writings the course of his life until his death in the 1930s uh, one of the most intelligent and pleasing defenses of the faith against the rational critics of his age and, not surprisingly, our own age, and did so artfully and with great conviction. Chesterton was born at the very end of the, of the, eight, of the, excuse me, of the 19th century. He was not raised in a particular faith and, as he came of age, considered himself an atheist or at least an agnostic. He was a free thinker. He wanted to find the truth apart from what had been told to him or taught to him. 
And so he set about pursuing the right perspective on reality. How do I bring myself into, into alignment with what is and not simply with what I've been taught? He was a colossal genius. That certainly helped him in his pursuit of that truth. But in the course of his, of his long series of reflections and insight and discovery, he came to a point where the things that he concluded were the, the most beautiful and most attractive things about what is started to line up very clearly with something that he had long ago rejected as, as an unsuitable way to live one's life, namely Christianity. And he wrote this in a, in a little book that he entitled Orthodoxy. He wrote that book 15 years before he became a Catholic. And in it, he traced his philosophy, though it would be a stretch to say it was his philosophy because he said, I didn't make it, I discovered it. It made me. In the beginning of his book, which I recently reread, he said, I've often had a, a desire to write a romance about an English yachtsman who slightly miscalculated his course on a long voyage and discovered England under the impression that it was a new island in the South Seas. He goes on to say, you might think that such a man who planted the British flag on that barbaric temple, which turned out to be London Bridge, felt kind of like a fool. But you have not, if you thought that, you would not have studied with sufficient delicacy the rich romantic nature of the hero of this tale I wish to tell. His mistake was really a most enviable mistake. For what could be more delightful, Chesterton asked, what could be more delightful than to have in the same few minutes all the fascinating terrors of going abroad combined with all of the humane security of coming home again? What could be better than to have all the fun of discovering South Africa without the disgusting necessity of having to land there? What could be more glorious than to brace up one's self to discover new South Wales and then realize with a gush of happy tears that it was really old South Wales? This at least seems to me, says Chesterton, the main problem for philosophers and in a manner is the main problem of my life. How can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and at home in it? How can this strange cosmic town with its Strange, many-legged citizens, how can this world give us at once the fascination of a strange town and the comfort and honor of being our own town? That, in a sense, I would argue, is precisely what the new evangelization is about in our own time. People who perhaps have come to see the church as something old, and irrelevant and far too familiar to be of any worth, going in search of something wild and eccentric and exotic and adventurous, and to come back into this great home, this spiritual home, and discover all the treasures that were beneath our feet without ever being able to see them. Chesterton wanted us to see that, and his faith his faith in Catholicism answered that double spiritual need of the mixture of familiar and unfamiliar, which Christendom, he says, rightly named romance. For the very word romance has in it the mystery and the ancient meaning of Rome. 
He went on to, to say, it is impossible to be just to the Catholic Church. The moment you cease to pull against it, you feel a tug towards it. The moment its opponents cease to shout it down, they begin to listen to it with pleasure. The moment they try to be fair to it, they begin to be fond of it. But when that affection has passed a certain point, it begins to take on the tragic and menacing grandeur of a great love affair. A great love affair. For that to be our relationship with the church. That's my prayer for myself and for each of us. For Chesterton saw that the only way out of the despondency of Job, that sounds all too familiar to us today, is love. Is love. Now, I suppose all of that's fairly abstract and not very specific in terms of what Chesterton actually argued, how he made that defense, and how he set it forth. I hope our presentation tomorrow night will do precisely that to the best that we can in a single evening. For Chesterton's works, uh, could easily spend, you could easily spend the rest of your life diving into them and delighting in them. But if that isn't attractive enough to you in and of itself, perhaps then I could end with an invitation that Chesterton issued again and again throughout his life. The path, the path to love, the path to romance, and the path of escape from that despondency was a simple invitation to drink to drink, but to drink for the right reasons. He said, the pagans made wine into not a sacrament, but medicine. The pagan feasts because life is not joyful. The pagan revels because he is not glad. Drink, he says. For you know not where you come from, nor why. Drink, for you know not when you go, nor where. Drink, because the stars are cruel and the world is idle. Drink, because there's nothing worth trusting, nothing worth fighting for. Drink, because all things are lapsed in a base equality and an evil peace. And so that pagan stands offering us the cup in his hand. But at the high altar of Christianity stands another figure, in whose hand also is the cup of the vine. Drink, he says, for the whole world is as red as this wine, with the crimson of the love and the wrath of God. Drink, for the trumpets are blowing. The battle is ready, and this is the stirrup cup. Drink, for this is my blood of the New Testament that is shed for you. Drink, for I know where you come from and why. Drink, for I know when you go and where. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.